the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Morning all. Hey, hope everyone's had a good week. So, yes, that's what I'm supposed to be <laughs> doing something on Hebrews 9 verse 11, so it's kind of part two of Hebrews 9. Gone a little bit rogue, um, like what Juliet was saying, not too rogue, but a little bit rogue, because, yeah, yeah, because thank you for that. As, as you know, you, you kind of, you try and listen to the Holy Spirit and go with what he's, uh, he's prompting you to do, so bear with me. Yeah, we are, we're going to do, a, first off, a little bit of an overview for any of those who missed it last week or just have terrible memories we read through a portion of Hebrews 9, uh, which talks quite a bit about this concept of a tabernacle. So can everyone hear me all right? Cool. All right, sweet. So we explored the scriptures, and we found that the tabernacle is this type of portable temple uh, that the people of Israel were instructed to construct in the Old Testament. So specifically, it's, it's kind of laid out in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. So this tabernacle contains something called the sanctuary, which is the dwelling place of God's presence on earth. So we looked at something called the outer court, which if I could have that up, please, Daniel. Um, we looked at something called the outer court. Yep, so it's got the, we looked at entrance gate, altar of burnt offerings, and the laver, uh, which is a yeah, big, big bowl used for ceremonial washing. So we explored the concept of how the tabernacle in the wilderness is, is a picture of God's plan of salvation, how it's, how it's worked out um, through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Quick overview, quick context. So we've got uh, those seeking reconciliation with God uh, to offer atonement or payment for their sins. They freely enter through the entrance gate um, into the uh, outer court, and any Israelite was welcome. And then we've got the altar of burnt offerings. So that was this place of repentance, sacrifice. Uh, we looked at the fact that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice or payment for our sins, but also that we've got to follow in his footsteps and offer ourselves as living sacrifices as well. Uh, then we've got the laver, uh, which uh, symbolized the washing and cleansing that happens as a result of that sacrifice. So we, we also looked at similarities to baptism and the concept that we can be sanctified or set apart and made holy by the washing of the word. So this, this outer court, it was the experience of the general Israelite public, people that came to the tabernacle and were ministered to by the priests. So today, we're planning on entering into the tabernacle itself, which was a place that only priests were allowed to enter. In the time of the wilderness tabernacle, only members of the tribe of Levi were called to be priests. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. That makes sense? <laughs> Some Levites uh, were involved in the, in the packing down and the setting up of the temple, because it was portable. But when we move into the New Testament, we get these verses that start to reference us as believers being priests. So if I can go to that second slide, please, Daniel. We've got Revelation 1 verse 6 says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 
in Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And on such and on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then 1 Peter 2.5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So, here we have this idea being played out that the that those that love and follow Jesus become priests in his service. So based on that, the heart for today was to examine the service of these Old Testament priests and see if there's anything we can learn from their duties that they were required to carry out for our own spiritual walks under this new heavenly tabernacle. Description of the earthly tabernacle was found in Exodus 25 to 27. We briefly touched on it last week. It wasn't very big. It was um, 17 metres long, 5.5 metres wide, and 5.5 metres high, which is actually very similar size to our living room, Juliet. So it's actually much smaller than this building. Uh, but what it lacked in size, it made up for in quality. So it's mainly constructed out of this, this wood. It's, it's, it's called chitin wood, um, also known as red acacia. It's incredibly hard and dense and hard-wearing. And uh, these timber planks uh, were then overlaid with gold and slotted into silver sockets, uh, which formed the walls. The roof was made of curtains, as you can kind of see there. We'll go through the layers. They were fine twined linen, um, white, blue, purple, scarlet, cherubims of cunning work, the Bible says. Um, and then these were overlaid with goat's hair uh, and then um, badger and ram skins that were dyed red. So, yeah, these, these kind of protected it from the elements, and then it's all got pegged down. Yeah, it looked like that, basically. And the inside would have been quite spectacular. It's, it's, it's divided into two apartments by this thick, full-height curtain. It would have been rich, beautiful, and it's suspended from these gold pillars. The walls would have shone like polished gold mirrors and uh, reflecting the light of the candlestick everywhere. So this was one of the best images. It was actually really hard to find images of the inside. This is one of the, one of the ones I liked. So, yeah, it's pretty impressive, eh? Would have been, if your thing was gold, it would have been, yeah, would have been great. Now, there's obviously heaps of symbolism uh, that can be dug into with the structure itself. So people have long pondered and debated the meanings of each of the materials and the colours. And you know, like For example, people have said, so that wood, that represents man, while the, the overlay of gold represents God. And the white linen, does that represent purity with the blue for heaven and the purple for royalty and the scarlet for Jesus' blood? Don't really have time to go into all of that today. But I would encourage anyone to be more open to studying the, uh, the less obvious passages of the Bible, the, the ones that seem quite tedious, and I'm speaking to myself here, because while I don't know everything that these items represent, I'm certain they will have some significance. Because we serve a God of big details and of tiny, small details as well. So we are primarily going to look at the three pieces of furniture that are found in the first apartment that's called the holy place because these relate readily relate to the uh, to the sacrifice it uh, really relates sorry to the to the service or the work that these priests were required to carry out so uh, who knows what this is table of showbread 
Yes, described in uh, Exodus 25, verse 23, and in Numbers 4, 7. I'm going to read those out. So it says, Thou shalt make uh, also a table of shittim wood, two cubits, which is kind of roughly the length of that, two cubits, the length, cubit, the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a height, the heart, the height thereof. And Numbers 4, 7 says, Upon the table of showbread they shall spread a cloth of blue, and put thereon the dishes and the spoons and the bowls and the covers to cover withal, and the continual bread shall be thereon. So this showbread is also known as the bread of presence. It's in the Lord's presence. Uh, this holy bread is only allowed to be eaten in the holy place and only by the Levite priests. So each week on the Sabbath, the priests would come and replace this fresh bread and eat the loaves that they had replaced it with. So 12 loaves in total, thought to represent 12 tribes of Israel. I didn't dig too much into that, but that's the pretty common um, interpretation of it. So as we all probably know, the Bible has heaps to say about bread. Uh, some people think this represents the Lord's Supper, so that, that Jesus would eventually partake of with his disciples. Slight issue with that is, is there's no real mention of there being any wine in this tabernacle version. I personally, looking into it, um, subscribe to this theory that it represents the word of God. So we've got verses like Matthew 4, 4. Uh, Jesus is in the desert, he's been tempted, and he answers Satan, and, and he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And of course, one of Jesus' titles is the word of God. So it's John 1, 1, and, and in John six thirty five we read, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So the table and the bread could also be described as a, uh, as a picture of God's willingness to fellowship and commune with us. So when we read Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him or eat with him and he with me. So in summary for this item, it's, it's one of the duties of the priests of that day was to make sure there's fresh bread on the table and that the previous bread was not just thrown out, but eaten there in the presence of God. So then we have item number two, which is this golden lampstand or candlestick. Yeah. Candelabra? Yeah, there was heaps of words different from the menorah, candelabra. So yeah, in Exodus 25, 31 to 32, it describes this candlestick and it says now shall make a candlestick of pure gold of beaten work shall the candlestick be made his shaft and his branches his bowls his knops and his flowers shall be the same and six branches shall come out the sides of it three branches uh, of the candlestick out of one side and three branches of candlestick out the other side so yeah that image was a little bit blurry sorry it didn't really do it justice but um, I'd like to think it was a pretty spectacular sight um, seeing the light of that candle reflect of the golden walls. So yeah, three branches out each side and one in the middle, so seven total. When we look at, at light in the Bible, we find a whole lot of examples, naturally. In John 8, 12, I found it says, that, And Jesus spake unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then Jesus says something interesting in uh, John 9, 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
So what about when Jesus is not in the world? <laughs> uh, the Bible says that Jesus is back in heaven. We then see a verse that describes us as now bearing light. So we've got Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Ye are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We've all almost exclusively here been talking about an earthly sanctuary, but as we've read in a uh, past message, uh, Hebrews indicates that this earthly sanctuary is, is a copy or a pattern of a sanctuary that's in heaven. In Revelation chapter 1, we read about John. So this is the disciple, beloved disciple of Jesus. And he gets a glimpse. He's taken up to heaven and he gets a glimpse of this heavenly sanctuary. So John sees seven candlesticks, seven golden candlesticks. And Jesus says to him, these seven golden candlesticks, they represent the seven churches. And seven's a special number in the Bible. It represents a complete number. So I personally believe, looking into these verses and, and that candlestick, that just like that candlestick, we as priests are called to show forth the light that is in us. And what is our light? It's our witness. It's, it's the lives that we live, the testimony of Christ in us. So when people see that light and glorify our Father in heaven and be drawn closer to God, I've often actually heard this church reference as the light on the corner. But I think this is further demonstrated in, in how the seven-branched candlestick or lamp is, is powered. So in Leviticus 24.2, I don't have a slide for that, but it says, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually. So these lamps are powered by oil. And, and what does oil represent? Well, we, um, yeah, we have a look at Zechariah 4.1-6. It's a bit of a long passage, but it's really important. So... Zechariah was this prophet in the Old Testament, and, and the funny thing is, is that he was actually urging the Israelites to rebuild the now destroyed temple. And, and the angel that talked with me came again, and waked me as a man that waketh out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and a seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are on the top thereof, and two olive trees by it one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side thereof. So I answered and spake unto the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel talked with me and answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what those be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, which was the governor of Judah at the time, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Which is pretty cool to me. So, so here we're given this picture that this lampstand is, uh, is being powered from the right and the left by oil. And when asked, this angel confirms that this oil from this lamp uh, stick is, is the Spirit of God. We've got this last item in the holy place. It's, it's, it's called the altar of incense. Yeah, I, it's normally this part of the message that I'm trying to think of, like, what's a personal story, you know, that can, that can tie in and relate? And I really kind of struggled with this whole tabernacle thing, and then I remembered something. I used to work in a place called Smoke Dreams uh, in Melbourne. And we sold all kinds of very, yeah, questionable paraphernalia. And, and incense was one of the things that we sold, heaps of it. And um, we used to burn it there as well. And I had a revelation there 
that I really hate the smell of incense. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I assume that all suffice as a story to kind of <laughs> tie this together. That's the best I've got <laughs> in my relationship with incense. Um, so this incense hopefully smelled better. Uh, it's described in Exodus 30, and, and it's this altar. is this altar for burning sweet incense on. And this incense is, is burned at morning and at night. Question, what do you think this incense might relate to us for today? Prayer? Yeah, when we look in, in the Word, it, it says in Psalm 141 verse 2, for example, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5.8 says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odours. It's another word for incense. Some other versions say incense. Which are the prayers of saints? Revelation 8 also talks about the smoke of the incense which came with the prayer of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So I think it's, it's, it's probably pretty... It's not unrealistic, I should say, to assume that this altar of incense in the wilderness tabernacle could be a copy or a shadow of, of the prayers that we as believers get to offer up to God now. You could easily picture our prayers ascending up to God as the incense ascended in the sanctuary. could also be a picture of Jesus' mediation on our behalf. So this altar of incense was actually set forward from everything else. It was, it was situated right before the curtain, right before the mercy seat of the ark. And um, in Hebrews 7.25, it's talking about Jesus, and he says, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing as he ever liveth to make intercession for them, which is talking about us. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Murray spoke about this the other week how Jesus is the ultimate high priest and how he faultlessly carries out his uh, high priest duties for us as people. He is an intercessor, a person who intervenes on behalf of others. Uh, so an example of this is, uh, would be Jeremy and, and Cap. They do, stop me if I'm wrong, Jeremy, intercessory work. They deal with credit card companies, for one example, on behalf of these Cap clients. And they mediate, and in some cases, I'm sure you've got to be a peacekeeper as well. In all this, I know it's, it's been a bit heavy, but in all this, what is the practical application that we can take out of this for our own Christian walks? I would say the first one is, for the priests in this tabernacle, this was a daily ministration. So in other words, seven day a week, 365 a year service. And when I'm reading through this, that was a reminder to me that being a believer in Christ and a, and a priest in his holy kingdom isn't a one-day-a-week gig. It's full-time. And it's a serious thing. We spoke about it last week. Aaron's sons got drunk, offered strange fire before the Lord, and we know, know what happened to them. It's, it's a stark reminder for myself and why I'm so thankful that we have Jesus interceding on our behalf. Number two, I reckon... It's not just about having God's word or about knowing God's word. It's about consuming God's word regularly. So these priests, they ate the showbread, and what did they replace it with? Fresh loaves, fresh bread. Got me thinking how important fresh revelation is from the scriptures, fresh insights from God's word. 
so often I can try and coast on lessons that I learnt long ago or lessons that other people learnt. But the Bible is, is so rich, it could, and it has, entertained and fascinated the most brilliant scholars and minds for their entire lives. In reality, we've just gone real surface level on this. I, uh, I have a friend who's very into the sanctuary. He said, oh, when you've got spare time, and he sent me, <laughs> he sent me a series, it's 32 parts, just under an hour long, each part, and he's like, give this a check out. I'm like, right, I will set aside 32 hours <laughs> to look into items that just deal with the sanctuary. That's how detail-orientated God is and how he cares for every little thing. That actually makes me more confident that he cares for every little thing because that means he can care for me. I'm a reasonably little thing. And the third thing is, is how fortunate we are to have help in our priestly role. So let me elaborate. I assume that we'd acknowledge that we're all flawed, yes? Prone to stuffing up, prone to making mistakes. And you may think, I, I can't be a priest. Um, I don't have my life all together. Here is a thought. God chose Moses, Aaron's brother, to be the first high priest. This is an incredibly important job, a role that Jesus himself would take over. A few short chapters after that, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai um, receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron under pressure from the Israelites, builds them a golden calf to worship and bow down to. So Aaron has already directly violated three of the Ten Commandments that Moses is currently receiving from God. Despite that horrible mistake, God still uses Aaron to be a high priest. So the man that led the Israelites astray in worshipping a false god is now the very man that God would use to lead Israel in worship of the true God. So as we know, many times God uses the least likely to accomplish tasks for his glory. And after the week I've had, I am sure encouraged by that. <laughs> so God also provides us help, like I mentioned in the beginning. So remember how we spoke about that candlestick that's powered by oil and how this oil represents the Spirit of God. So we read in Romans 8-9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So it's the Spirit of God that, that empowers us to be light to those around us, um, a true witness to others. So here's an interesting thought. So this, a fellow brother in Christ, he let me in on this at lunch the other day, and I thought, it was, I thought it was fascinating. I hope you will too. Where else in the tabernacle do we find the use of oil? In the showbread itself. What I get out of that is the Holy Spirit must be at work in our consumption of the word. How else would we be able to read the word of God with, with, um, without spiritual eyes, without spiritual discernment? So in 1 Corinthians 2.14, just to have some scriptural basis to this, it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they, those spiritual things, are spiritually discerned. We must always invite the Holy Spirit into our time of Bible reading, and of Bible study, and of Bible meditation. And I am, yeah. I'm guilty of not doing that. Now, if there's oil in the lamp and in the showbread, what's the natural conclusion that another item might have oil as well? Any guesses? The priest also got anointed with oil, yep. But that's not quite what I was thinking. The incense. You see, this, this incense also had oil mixed in with it. And, and this incense, this wasn't just being offered, offered up on behalf of the priests. You see... It was being offered up on behalf of the whole of Israel. So in our case, I think it, it 
highlights the importance that, that these prayers here, that these priests, these were intercessory prayers. So they could be prayers for the salvation of our family members or our neighbours or our nation. Only with the power of the Holy Spirit could we possibly intercede for people that ridicule us, reject us, despise Jesus, pass all these despicable laws that harm everyone from unborn babies to the elderly. Intercession is in our church DNA. Huntley Baptist, bridging the gap. So in closing, I think we should be encouraged by Hebrews 9 because we don't have to go to a particular place now to talk with God. We don't have to worry about being led astray by rogue priests or an even rogue high priest. We've got Jesus perfectly interceding on our behalf. Now this might be obvious to some, but if the sanctuary was the dwelling place of God on earth, the place of his presence, and we carry the spirit of God within us, then are we not many sanctuaries too? Many tabernacles? We can be a place where God meets with people, where people are reconciled to God and ministered to. So I just want to leave you with that thought, and I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, and we thank you that Jesus has been set up as our high priest, and that he constantly makes intercession for us. We thank you for sending him, and we thank you that you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit to also be priests. And we ask that you'd help us walk out that service, that you'd bring people along our paths this week that need to be ministered to. And we ask that you would also continue to minister to us. Uh, So we surrender this week to you. We thank you for all you've done for us. Most of all, yeah, for your Holy Spirit and your precious Son, Jesus. That's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.